So I'm sure you guys can probably tell I'm still uh, working out the kinks with how to, you know, make all this sound real nice for you guys in, in terms of putting things together. So give me a couple episodes. I'm working on it. I promise it'll sound better soon. But while we wait. Welcome back, everyone. Okay, we are here for day three of testimony in the United States first Maxwell trial. Now, before we get started, I have some exciting news. I think I found the name for my podcast finally, guys. So I'm not going to say it now, but I think I'll uh, I think I'll say it if I finally make a decision as to if I'm actually going to choose it at the start of the next episode. So you know, I'm sure you're waiting on bated breath for that. For that information, but for now, we're going to get into the continued testimony of victim number one, who is being referred to as Jane. And when we left on Tuesday, she was in the middle of her cross examination by the defense, and that's where we're going to pick up again. So, all I got to say, guys, is woof. This was pretty rough for the prosecution. Um, All right, so this is her cross-examination of victim number one, Jane, like I just said. Um, First, I'm going to take you through some of the more minor stuff that I felt like the defense was uh, was using to try to attack her. Um, You know, first, they, they seem to focus a lot on whether or not she came from a supportive family or not. Um, They were pushing the fact that she was attending this camp where she where she had apparently met Maxwell and Epstein that was $4,000 a month and she never received any financial aid or scholarships either her or her brothers over the three summers that they had attended there and her application said that she was from a strong loving family background and even went so far as to describe her siblings as the rebirth of the Von Trapp family from The Sound of Music. That was interesting. Um, I know from other reporting that her her father had passed away nine months prior to her meeting Epstein and that the family had fallen into bankruptcy after that. Again, I'm not really sure why any of this matters in terms of child sexual abuse or... I, I think what the defense was trying to do here was say she painted herself as this, you know, vulnerable victim type that came from an unsupportive family and she basically was preyed upon, but that's not the case here. Like I said, I'm not really sure how much of a difference that makes when it comes down to allegations of sexual abuse. Um, Also, they point out that she is from Palm Beach and not West Palm Beach. Apparently those are very different. If somebody from uh, Florida wants to, wants to give me some more info on that, um, I'm here to listen. So, okay. What was the other thing? Oh, they also kept trying to point out. So this victim is a is currently and has been for the last, I believe it was 22 years, an actress, a, so, a soap opera actress. And they were just trying to say, this is like just another gig for you. You're just acting. You know, they were asking her things like, can you cry on command? Uh, 
I mean, I think that's nonsense. I think any jury also knows that's nonsense. Just because somebody is an actor by profession definitely does not mean that they are lying and acting when they take the stand. So let's get into the deets here. Uh, This got pretty heavy, guys. And I actually thought this day was a pretty, pretty big win for the defense, I must say. Um, All right, so inconsistent statements. This is a way that attorneys can attempt to impeach a witness through their testimony. And what that means is that they are basically discrediting the witness by proving they made different statements at different times or and or to different people. And when an attorney is cross-examining an opposing witness, the main objection is to attack the fuck out of their credibility and show that their testimony is unreliable at best. And they're trying to show that to the jury. You know, they're basically trying to say, I don't, they're basically trying to say she's a liar. We're not calling her a liar, but that's what, that's on cross-examination. That's what everybody, that's what every attorney is trying to do. And I did feel that in many ways, the defense was effective in this during her cross. So first, the defense was implying, not first, throughout the entire thing, to be honest, but the defense attorney was implying that the witness gave differing accounts to the feds during her interviews with them in 2019 and 2020 than she had given during her direct examination on Tuesday. Um, Some minor points in the inconsistency argument, at least in my opinion, were things like who approached her first at the picnic table at the camp? Was it, was it, uh, Epstein or was it Maxwell? Again, I mean, I don't know how important that point was, but the next couple ones are pretty, pretty important. So basically they said to her, you told the feds in 2019 and 2020 that Epstein had flown you out to New York City, or flown you up, I should say, on his private jet when you were 14 in 1994 to see The Lion King, and that by this time you had already been pulled into the pattern of abuse with Maxwell and Epstein. The defense didn't miss a beat here, and she immediately went into attack mode, because although I am not a Broadway buff, some of you may be, and you may be saying, wait a minute, The Lion King wasn't on Broadway in New York until 1997. So that, and that would have been when she was 17. So that's the three-year difference. Um, you know, I don't know if the age really matters, to, to be fair, but, you know, this is a, this is a big point to me. They're basic. she said, in 1994, I was already entangled in this grooming abuse process with the two of them. And they're saying, hold on a minute, that can't be true. We have facts. In response to being wrong, um, because she really couldn't deny that, you know, I mean, listen, we can all Google, right? She said that she may have been off on her timeline. And, you know, being off on your timeline by three years is, is a lot to be off on. And aside from that, it just goes to the discussion that we had about the memories in the last episode and to the reliability of them. And... I can only imagine that during defense's case, when they call their false memories expert, to, they're going to use this to say, look, she's unreliable, and so are her memories. And I do think that that was a point on the board for the defense here. 
Um, it also goes to what I was talking about uh, in terms of using the vague language in the indictment. I, was, I said how they didn't cite specific dates and acts, and I thought that that was purposeful and smart on behalf of the prosecutors. Um, and, and they did that, I can only imagine, in hopes to avoid this exact situation of getting tripped up on dates and things like that. So even with the benefit of the vagueness of the language in the indictment, uh, the victim here still fell prey to that attack on her memory, and I do feel that this was a pretty big blow for the defense and upon her credibility in general. And again, I'm not calling her a liar, but it definitely doesn't look great when a juror hears this. So we'll have to see how that's going to be used by the defense when they call their expert and how the prosecution is going to work to bandage that up a little bit. So next, in terms of inconsistent statements, we talked about the entire case and how it hinges on Maxwell's involvement in the grooming process and facilitating the sexual abuse with Epstein. And the testimony turned to Maxwell's involvement in the grooming process. According to the defense, the witness changed her testimony regarding setting up appointments to see Epstein, and this is, this, this is how that exchange went down. Prosec- uh, the defense attorney asked her, so two years later, you remember, Jelaine called your home to set up these appointments? She replies, right. Defense goes, that memory has come back to you in the past two years? And she responds, and I quote, memory is not linear. I definitely think this is no bueno, guys. Not good for the prosecution. You know, we know they're going to show, or at least attempt to show, that her memories are inaccurate and unreliable through their expert later on, and statements like memory isn't linear is probably is probably not going to help to bolster the prosecution's claim that they are reliable. Um, I, I just don't see how a statement saying that memory isn't linear is going to be helpful here. You know, I, I completely understand, especially as a victim, when you're on the stand and being put under pressure and your, and, and your story. And again, when I say story, I'm not trying to be dismissive. It's just a word I'm using. I, I'm not saying I am not saying I don't believe what she's saying. Um, the prosecution is really going to have to come up with a game plan here to turn this around and fix this. So next, according to federal documents, the witness herself told investigators in these 2019 and 2020 interviews that she she had a foggy memory on Maxwell's involvement in her sexual abuse. Specifically, her memory was foggy regarding if Maxwell was ever present when Epstein assaulted her and if Maxwell herself ever touched her. Man, this was brought up, brought out fully and ugh, that's all I'm going to say is ugh. That's absolutely not all I'm going to say. I'm going to talk about this. She was confronted with her statements to the feds, and she she, basically she said she couldn't recall if she said she was unsure if Maxwell ever touched her or kissed her, and she also couldn't recall if she said she couldn't remember if Maxwell instructed her on how to give massages to Epstein. So basically what this what this was trying to show and potentially did show to this jury is that in 2019 and 2020, she did, in fact, tell the feds that she was not sure about these things, and the defense asked her about it, and she's now saying in her testimony that these things did happen. So again, it calls in her state, it, it calls these statements into question. Which one did they believe? When I say they, I mean the jury. Are they to believe what she is saying here and now in court, or what she told federal investigators in 2019 and 2020? 
Now, just to wrap this moment up, this was a big shocking or, you know, this was big testimony of this next part. This is a questioning by the defense again. Quote, as you sit here today, you don't remember if you and Ms. Maxwell and Mr. Epstein were ever in a room alone together? Close quote. She responds with no. I mean, this is really not great. This is, this is actually pretty bad, guys. She literally testified yesterday that they were, in fact, alone together. And I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if this was just the pressure getting to her or what happened here. But yeah, again, just not, not great. Definitely poking holes here. The defense is doing a pretty effective job. Um, a jury could see an issue here. Definitely raises the issue of reasonable, reasonable doubt. So we'll have to see. Um, the last thing was there was a questioning about abuse occurring at the New Mexico ranch that the victim has had previously described as making her heart sink into her stomach. Again, she was attacked with the prior statements in the federal documents that indicated she told them no abuse ever occurred at that location. Again, it's another inconsistency. And I, I think this one's important because, you know, saying, it made my heart sink into my stomach is a feeling that we've all felt in, in some regard. Um, and it's something that a jury can relate to and having that statement basically contradicted or basically being said, but that's not what you said. I think that that could play a role in how a jury, uh, perceives this witness and this victim. So, Again, I'm not calling her a liar. I'm not saying she's lying, but I'm just trying to put myself in a juror's shoes here. I, yeah, I just don't think that the cross was good for them on this, with this victim. And with damage control, you know, she tried to mitigate the damage here and she denied that her accounts had changed, even though, you know, obviously they had. She was questioning the veracity of the contents of these federal documents and was saying that her statements were never formally recorded during the interviews. It was someone jotting down notes. When she was looking at the documents on the stand, she said, you know, a lot of these are not correct. I don't recall saying what's written here. Other prior statements of hers in those federal documents, like um, just this is just an example, like there were many model type women around giving group massages to Epstein. Now, those were not disputed by her. It's it's just an interesting note, but of course this makes sense. But honestly, it's it's not a good look for the prosecution because it's like what what parts are accurate? What parts of the federal documents are you telling me are accurate, and what parts aren't? So if we take the victim's word that these statements were not accurately recorded, it then calls into question the truth of the federal investigation and their and their documents. So you know, and this is the government's presenting their case based on, this is in federal court. So, you know, either way, not great. Not wonderful. So, uh, let's see, what do we want to talk about next? On redirect, she was asked why she didn't tell the feds all the deets, all the deets, all, excuse me, guys, casual, all the details about everything or why she left certain things out. And listen, like any abuse victim, she said it was really emotionally difficult to talk about. I'm not sure how much damage control that really did. Um, I think the damage had already been done, unfortunately. But again, you know, we gotta, we gotta see what the jury says here. It's not up to us to decide. It's the jury who's looking 
at all of this. So the next part, uh, or you know, actually, let's go to the financial incentive here. The defense kept harping on this. I think I said this in one of my other episodes. The defense was really harping on this financial incentive. Um, she had a lot of questions about if she is supporting family members with money. Uh, they directed the jury's attention to the civil lawsuits that she's filed against Maxwell and, Ep- and Epstein's estate and her participation in the Epstein Victim Compensation Fund. I'm not really sure if this is that important, but it's it's worth mentioning. Um, on redirect, she said she wishes she never took the money and that she just really hopes to finally find some sort of closure here. I do think that this um, will play somewhat of a role if it's if it's continued harp if it's continued to be harped on by the defense. But personally, I don't know if I would let that affect how I felt as a juror. But anyway, that was pretty much. Um, a summary of her testimony on cross. What else do we have? Um, who else testified? Oh, her former boyfriend testified. He went under a pseudonym. I think it was Matt. So he was her boyfriend, previous prior boyfriend of eight years. Um, he did say that he was aware of a godfather, uncle, or family friend type who helped her mother pay bills. He also testified that she was shaken and embarrassed and horrified when she discussed the relationship with Epstein and she would say things like, the money wasn't fucking free. Uh, but she didn't go into any more details than that. I mean, that that could definitely tend to make one think that if the money wasn't fucking free, well, she was doing something for that money and was obviously unhappy about it. Um, also, importantly, according to the ex-boyfriend, he was aware from conversations with the victim that uh, Epstein had an adult female friend that made... The victim feel uncomfortable, but he did not know the woman's name. And according to defense questioning, he not questioning of him, but questioning the, her name, Maxwell's name didn't come up and was never confirmed until after her arrest. I think his testimony was used by the prosecution to in an attempt to corroborate her testimony. It, you know, I, I don't know how much it helped it. It's something, but it it definitely didn't fix all the damage that occurred on cross. But hopefully they'll be able to do something about that later. Anyway, I I do see a lot of problems here that I do want to quickly go over before we finish for today. But I also saw something. I saw something in an article saying that victims of abuse are often inconsistent inconsistent in statements and that these inconsistencies generally don't sway juries. Now, listen, I don't disagree. I don't, I am not an expert in abuse victims and how they recall things. I, I don't disagree with that. Their statements may be truthful, but inconsistent. However, I do disagree with the fact that it doesn't generally sway juries. I think inconsistencies in people's testimony absolutely fucking sways jurors. I mean, if they just, it, I mean, think about it in real life. If somebody's constantly saying something and then somebody else is saying, no, you didn't say that. You said this, actually. It does, it, you know, you're going to think, what the hell's going on here? Um, you know, the whole memories aren't linear line. I, I really don't love that for the prosecution. I, I, I really felt like, damn, girl, you better make your memories linear, at least for this trial. Um, I think we may have some major fucking problems here. I definitely see some reasonable doubt creeping in and, you know, we'll have to see what happens, but 
there there was actually one more witness on on Wednesday afternoon, and it was somebody from the camp or the school Interlochen, I believe it was called, who testified that Epstein was in fact a major donor. Uh, not really sure why that was super relevant, but anyway. So in conclusion, I kind of just want to talk about how some legal things here. The prosecution has to walk a really tight fucking rope. It's a real thin line they have to stay on because they obviously have to show that Epstein was the evil perverted fuck that he was, but they, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Maxwell was knowingly facilitating in this process of grooming the victims for Epstein's sexual reasons. They must prove their charges against Maxwell, not against Epstein. Unfortunately, Epstein's not on trial here. Maxwell is. So it it will not be enough for the prosecution to merely point to all the horrendous, disgusting shit Epstein did. It's just not enough here to prove their charges against Maxwell. It's two separate things. The nexus to Maxwell is absolutely necessary in proving this case. So they can bring up all the salacious stuff about Ma- about Epstein, but they have to connect it. That's the bottom line. So with this cross, I'm a little concerned that the prosecution is struggling, at least with this victim. You know, again, I'm in no way personally saying that the victim was untruthful, undirect, but the defense was super effective in poking holes in her story with emphasis on the inconsistencies in her statements to federal agents as well as her timeline. You know, the the specific testimony about her being unable to recall if she ever mentioned Maxwell in her initial, initial stories and the te- the blowing testimony that she could she couldn't recall if the defendant ever touched her and things like that or if she was ever alone in a room with Maxwell and Epstein I mean these are things we heard yesterday that she testified to and now she's literally saying the opposite so the question here is is this enough to raise reasonable doubt I do feel like the prosecution should be a little bit worried after this testimony they're gonna have to tighten things up on their end and hopefully they're you know, the remaining victims and witnesses will be able to corroborate her stories rather than prove further what the defense was trying to say. So that's where we're at. Day three, finished. So what do you guys think? Let me know. We'll be back tomorrow with some more, some more testimonies, some more thoughts. And uh, yeah, that's it for now.